Those first three pictures are very galling, aren't they? But a picture does paint a thousand words. All sorts of emotions are conjured up and you're thinking all sorts of things as you see those things that have happened in our world in relatively recent times. Here's one that's uh, much more comical, or perhaps you don't think it's comical, you think it's scary. But a picture paints a thousand words. Not sure what you're thinking with that image, but no doubt it's getting you thinking. Well, we'll get off that because we don't want that picture to dwell in our minds. But the reason to ask you that, uh, a picture paints a thousand words, is the early chapters of Acts, in many ways, that Luke the writer is painting a picture of the early church. Uh, and he's trying to draw us in to understand what it was like. Wellesley tackled a sort of really important question in one of the early uh, talks on the book of Acts. How do you know when you read something in Acts? Is it descriptive, simply describing what was, or is it prescriptive, prescribing the way that we should do church today. And it's quite a difficult um, debate and there are different things that you can do to apply to scripture to figure that out. But actually in many ways I think a simpler way of looking at it is looking at the early chapters of Acts as setting out um, patterns which we can then apply into the life of our church. Uh, and the, I hope that they're patterns that where you've looked in and you've seen the early church relating to each other, relating to God, you've looked in and said that is something really attractive Uh, That is something I want to keep praying for and striving for in God's grace in this church. Uh, If you're maybe not a Christian believer, but you're looking at this church, I hope that you're seeing something of the patterns established in Acts in this church. I'm sure we've got a long way to go in lots of areas. Every church will. But the early chapters of Acts are establishing patterns which we can apply to try and understand how God wants our church to be today. Uh, One of the sort of summaries of these patterns came up in chapter 2, and this was touched on in last week's talk. Uh, A church devoted to God, a church committed to one another, and a church that's open to a lost world. And I hope that sort of resonates in your heart and you say, that's attractive. I want to be part of a church that's like that. Well, that is what the early church was like. Uh, And then in chapter 4, particularly verses 32 to 35, you get a kind of repeated pattern. Uh, I hope you notice that some of the stuff in the early part of the reading was really almost a direct repeat of something in chapter 2. You then get to the end of our reading. Have a look at the last verse, chapter 5, verse 11. You'll see a word there, church. Um, it's a, a, word, a word ecclesia, means a gathering. It's the first time in the book of Acts that Luke the writer refers to the gathered people of God as a church. Now maybe that's a little uh, marker by the narrator, sort of saying, I've established some patterns, and now I can call what I've established a church. So actually the first four or five chapters in Acts are really, really important for us as we think about what this church should look like. So what I want to do this morning is focus on uh, verses 32 to 35 for most of our time, just picking out three things that we see in this kind of portrait or pattern or picture that's painted of the early church. And then we're just going to look at two examples, which you saw later on. An example of one person who upheld the pattern that had been established, And then an example of a couple who undermine the pattern. And we'll use them just to sort of look into our own hearts and ask the question, am I helping to build the pattern of healthy church or is my attitude undermining it? So that's where we're going to go this morning. First of all, though, look at verse 32 as our reading started. Do you notice it says all the believers? Now, before we just skip through that, think about what's being said. Chapter 4, verse 4, a verse from last week. How many? 5,000 men. It's a common way of counting, to just count the men, the heads of the households. So no doubt the early church was a bigger group, much bigger than 5,000. So here, the writer is talking about 5,000 minimum who gather together. 
And because it's such a big number, look at what is so extraordinary about what comes next. They were one in heart and mind. It's a challenge in a church of about 320 to be of one mind and heart. Of course it is. Here's a church of at least 5,000, but we read that they were of one mind and one heart. Which is speaking of the church having a unity where they're all pulling together in the same direction, despite all their differences. And it's a really beautiful thing. Now, you think of the Olympics. I love watching the Olympics. I particularly enjoy watching the cycling in the velodrome. And if you watch something like the Team Pursuit, here you've got the Great Britain team who are brilliant at this. At times they're cycling inches, even millimetres, from the person in front and behind. And they're flying around this track at high speed. But because of their unity and because of the skill and because of the training they've done, it's almost as if there's one cyclist and one bike, even though there's three, four or more, flying around the track. I think that's a little picture of what the writer is saying here about the early church being of one mind and one heart. So we're going to look at these three things together. What will having one heart, one mind look like for us as a church? And here's the first thing. It will look like a church that shares together. I've looked down at verse 32. It's a pretty challenging verse, isn't it? No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. What do you make of that? It's pretty challenging, isn't it? We're going to look at what that doesn't mean and what it does mean. But it's a challenging statement. Everyone shared all that they had. No one claimed that their possessions were their own. Now, I don't want to get into a theology of possession now. That's a talk for another day, perhaps. But if you reflect on our culture, we are unbelievably individualistic in our culture, aren't we? And we all work hard, and when we work hard, we earn money. And so, so often, everything that we earn, we therefore say is mine. I've earned it because I've worked hard. And it's true to a degree. But think of it, if you're a Christian, and and say you're a Christian who I hope and pray uh, tithes, gives a proportion of your income to be a blessing to others for gospel work, and in your conscience under God, you have to work out how much that's going to be. It doesn't matter how much it is, what matters is your heart. And God stirs each of us to give in different ways. But imagine you have gathered in the income that you have earned, and then you've decided I'm going to give this, and you give it. What do you then say about everything else? Do you see? Even when we're generous, we still then say everything else I've kept, even legitimately kept, is still mine. But it's not the pattern that we see here. It says the early church shared everything. Now just as a little caveat, I don't think this is speaking of communism. I don't think this is speaking of shared ownership or kind of living communally, where literally everything is shared and we just bring all the money that we all earn from all our different jobs and stick it down at Uh, at the feet and then we distribute it between us I don't think it literally means that how do I know that because if you flick forward to chapter 12 verse 12 there's a woman in the church who owns a big house and what happens in the big house there's a prayer meeting so here's an indication there are people who own things themselves their own private assets this happens to be a wealthy woman who's got a big house but what does she do with her big house she opens it up so that it can be used as a blessing to the church. So I think actually this, this whole picture that's painted here of sharing everything isn't necessarily a literal sharing of everything, though we need to be prepared to share everything, but it's much more talking about understanding that every single thing that I have, even what I've earned, is an amazing gift from God. And then asking the question, how do I use the gifts that God has given me to honor him and to be a blessing to the people around me? 
So just take one thing that you own, maybe a big thing like a house or a car, or uh, if you don't own a house or a car, something smaller. Just ask yourself the question, is the way that I use this honoring God and being a blessing to other people? That's a pretty good litmus test in many ways for a, a heart that is in line with what we see here. I think this could apply in lots of different ways. I'll give you a general application and a specific one. A general one, uh, this is a phrase I love using. I hope it's true for many of us here. I'm sure it is. Open homes, open hearts. How is it that I can live out the commands of this passage to share everything? It starts with opening up my heart to people. Not just loving people who are lovable or my friends, but loving everyone. And then what do I want to do? Naturally, I want to open the doors of my home and let people in. See my life in all its brokenness. Open homes, open hearts. And that's a general thing that we can all do to share what we have. And whether you have a a massive house with all the toys and you can have a lot of fun with them or a tiny little one-bed studio and all you've got is a little kettle, you can still open up your home, open up your heart and share. What we have is irrelevant. What we do with it is what really matters. Give you a more specific illustration. You get uh, jump forward to chapter 11, verse 29. There's a famine in Jerusalem. And we read in verse 29, each person, according to their ability, decided to help. No one was told they had to help, but they saw a need and they recognized the church was a family. And where there was a need and there were people who were able to help with that need, people responded. And don't you see that in our passage in verse 34, back in chapter 4? There was no needy persons among them. This is a real challenge for us as a church because it means that if people are committed to this church, there should not be a single person who's in desperate need and there's no one there to help them. That there shouldn't be a church like that if we are being serious about what we read here. Now maybe this is a particular challenge to those of you who are blessed with particular means. Maybe you have uh, more disposable income than the average person or more assets, or more a bigger home that can be used. Maybe it's a particular challenge to you. How do I use all that God has blessed me with to honour God and be a blessing to others? But actually, the reverse is true. It could equally be just as much a challenge if you're a person who's struggling day to day, because sometimes pride can get in the way of asking for help. But actually, if we're living out the principles we see in this passage, there should be nobody in need. We'll all have needs, but we should be seeking to help one another with the needs. And some can give materially, others can give of their time. Some can give emotionally, some can give prayerfully. There's all different ways that we give and share. But the point is, we're all in it together. And don't forget, this isn't just something we do because Christians are meant to be good people. Actually, all of the patterns that have been established in these opening chapters, what are they all part of? They're all part of this great mission of the book of Acts. So yes, I should love others in the church as I love myself and care for people. But actually imagine what that's also part of. It's more than just caring. It's part of God's mission. Because as people out there look in and they say, look at that community. There's nobody in need. But I know that she should be in need, but she's not. Why? Because there's a church that's blessing her. Or you look at that person who's very wealthy and they say, they should be living a very lavish lifestyle with all their money, but they don't. Because they use what they have to be a blessing to those who don't have what they have. So do you see, sharing is a good thing in and of itself. It's a good way of modelling this biblical pattern. But it's also a way of doing mission. Because people ask questions when we live counterculturally. So that's the first little picture. 
that a church of one heart and one mind shares together. Here's the second one. A church with one heart and one mind leads to a church that works together. If you were to summarize kind of what the purpose of the church is, it may be two little things. Here's one example of how you could do it. A church exists to help introduce other people to Jesus and for people who know Jesus to grow to love him more. I think that's a good definition of a church that seeks to introduce people to Jesus and people who do know Jesus are encouraged to grow to love him more. Bill Hybels, who's an American leader and pastor, has often said in many of his books, the local church is the hope of the world. But when our church stops being about introducing people to Jesus and helping people who do know Jesus get to know him better, it's not really offering much hope to the world. But that is what we're called to be. Come with me to verse 33. In order to work together, it says here, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where's that power come from? Look back to the very last verse of last week's reading, verse 31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So this great task that's not easy of working together in the gospel, we have to be powered by God's spirit, not doing it in our own strength. It's not about our programs. It's not about our organization. It's not about our hard work. As important as all those things are, it's about the spirit of God being alive in this church and being alive in our hearts. Because then with great power, we can continue testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. Now try and cast your mind back to last week in that passage. Why is it remarkable here that the apostles continued to tell people about Jesus? What had happened in chapter 4, verse 18? Can you remember last week? The religious authorities had said to Peter, I command you not to teach or speak at all in the name of Jesus. But they'd continued even with those threats, even in spite of everything that happened to them, they continue. Now, why do they continue? Second incredible thing, because the resurrection of Jesus is utterly life-changing. Do you remember the talk last week? Uh, We were helped to see that the Christian gospel is both inclusive and exclusive. Inclusive in the sense that the gospel is for all people. Chapter 2, verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an amazing truth. But it's exclusive. Chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no other name under heaven and on earth than the name of Jesus. The gospel is inclusive. It's for all people. It's exclusive. It's all about Jesus. Now, when Wellesley was telling us about that last week, he nearly took off in excitement. It doesn't take much to get him to take off in excitement. But why am I getting excited talking about it? Because it's real. The resurrection changes everything. And Peter and his friends had become so transformed by the love of God that they couldn't help but testify. They couldn't help but get on with the work that God had called them to do. It's a little challenge for us here then. If we are of one heart and one mind, we will work together. And our work will be to continue to testify to the love of the Lord Jesus. Testify not apologize. 
Now I know sharing a faith with people is difficult. I know some people are more gifted and find it easier than others. I get that. I know we're living in a world where very few people want to hear. But the point is, if the love of God is so alive in our heart, if the spirit of God is so real in us, we will want to testify in all of our weakness. Because we know that it is utterly life-changing news. You know how it works. You've got a, a, a Christmas flyer. And you pluck up the courage, because I'll tell you at Christmas, I'll tell you now. Go and knock on doors, give people flyers, welcome to Christmas services. I do it every year. And you'll try and do it. And you know what will happen. Some people, and I'll be like this too, to my shame, will go to a friend and we'll sort of sidle up to them and we'll chat about a few things. And then we'll give them a little flyer. And then we'll sort of say, well, there's this event on at church, but I guess you'll be busy, won't you? And we carry on talking. But I'd like you to come, but you didn't come last year, did you? So I don't really expect you to come this year. But I really want you to come. But you know, if you've got a lot of pressure on, I can see your kids are crying and and it's busy at home, don't worry, there's always next year. And we give them all the excuses not to come ourselves. But the apostles testified with great boldness. It's up to God whether they come or not. But if Christ is alive in our hearts, if we are of one heart and one mind as a church, not only will we share together so that there'll be no one in need, but we will also work together in testifying to Jesus Christ. Here's the last thing we're going to look at. A heart that has one heart and one mind will be a church in which the grace of God is evident. Have a look at verse 33. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Remember the all? At least 5,000 people who were together. God's grace was at work in all of them that there was no needy persons among them. When the grace of God is alive in our hearts, the first two things we looked at this morning will just be realities without us even thinking about it. Let me give you some practical examples of this. There'll be tons of physical needs in the life of this church, but those who at that time aren't suffering physically can be a blessing and a support to those who are. There'll be people in the church who are lonely, but they won't be lonely because the church will rally round and support and encourage and befriend and invite into their homes. There'll be people who feel spiritually flat. There's times where I feel spiritually flat. I just want to give it all up. And friends rally around me and say, keep going, I'll pray for you. We're not alone. There'll be people in the church who want to share their faith and want help to how to do that in a simple way, but they don't know how. And the church will respond and hopefully give some training and encouragement to help you to do it. The point is, it will be a church, if the grace of God is evident in our church, we will be a church where every single person is growing. I don't think it it matters where you are on a spiritual spectrum, from being a spiritual baby to being a spiritual giant. That doesn't matter. What matters is that you're growing. Growing a little bit, growing a lot. Don't worry, but are you growing? It's a powerful picture, isn't it? I hope it's a picture where you look in and go, that is the kind of church I want to be a part of. I hope when this church is getting this right, you say, I am part of a church that's doing this, and I love it. Imagine I had a big cake on the table here. If I, if I cut the cake right down the middle, you would see what's inside. It would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if someone came into our church and metaphorically cut each of our ministries in, in half, or each of our people in half, metaphorically, and inside you, they saw the grace of God in everything that we do. I'll give you another illustration. Um, can anyone tell me what this is? There's no trick. It's toothpaste. Just a little tube of toothpaste. Okay, what's inside a tube of toothpaste? Toothpaste, toothpaste yeah. You're all very clever today. Okay. 
When a, a, a tube of toothpaste is squeezed, what comes out? Toothpaste. When the church is squeezed, when the church is under pressure, when the church faces challenges and it's squeezed, what will come out of it? We hope and pray grace will. Because if grace lies at the very heart of what we're about as a church, then whatever we go through together, grace will ooze out of it. And the world will look in and go, there's something there that's very special. See, the grace of God has got to lay at the very heart of our church. The grace, what is all of that about? It's about a gift that God hands every one of us, which is a gift that you cannot earn, that you do not deserve. I cannot earn, I do not deserve, but God holds it out to us. It's a gift of his love. It's a gift of his forgiveness. It's a gift of his son. It's the gift of his spirit who comes to dwell within us. And do you notice when the gift of God comes to live within our hearts, not only does it come bring you to a place where you can come and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's not then the Spirit of God and the grace of God is done in my life. The grace of God continues working day after day, teaching me to forgive people that I don't want to forgive. Teaching me to love people I find really hard to love. The grace of God gets into my heart, into your heart. It churns it around and transforms it. God accepts us as we are, but we don't stay as we are because he is at work within our hearts. And the Spirit of God teaches us to be vulnerable and dependent on him, saying you cannot do this in your own strength, even if you're mega able. It's about me working in you. You know that great verse, not by strength, not by might, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. So there we have a picture. A church of one heart and one mind will be a church that shares together, a church that works together, and a church in which the grace of God is evident in all that we do. Just for the last few moments, I want to come to those two little illustrations that are probably puzzling you. Um, what are they there for, and why, and why can they help us? Well, the first illustration was this guy Joseph, otherwise known as Barnabas. It says in verse 36 and verse 37, he sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now notice this. It was a voluntary act. No one told him he had to do it. But he was so motivated by the grace of God that he chose to do it. Why did he do it? Because the grace of God has so transformed his life that he wanted to act radically in light of it. It's probably one of the reasons why Paul took Barnabas as his traveling companion on his first journey because he looked at Barnabas and says here is a gospel man here is a man who doesn't just know the gospel but lives it, it's in his heart and it affects the way that he lives his life I want to work with a person like that maybe God is calling someone here to do something really radical to help build a church of one heart and one mind I want, don't want to be remotely prescriptive in this space. Just allow God's spirit this week to speak to your heart. What could it be for you that would help you to build this pattern of a church of one heart and one mind? So there's the positive example that upholds the pattern that we see in Acts 1 to 4. But there's also an example of a negative example that undermines the pattern. You get it here with this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Chapter 5, verse 1. There's a man called Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira. They also sold a piece of property. Well, at first glance, you go, well, here's great. There's another person being generous. Verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, 
but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And you read that and go, well, that's generous too. He sold something he had and he's kept what he needs and he's given generously. But then why does Peter give him a really strong rebuke in verse 3? Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? And he asked him some questions. Uh, Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Answer, yes. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Answer, yes. And we know from the whole context, there was no obligation to give a particular amount. This was open for people. They could give if they wanted to give. So why does Peter give him such a strong rebuke? Well, the problem is that this man hadn't just lied to human beings. He had lied to God. The heart of Ananias was a heart of deception. Do you see in verse 2, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back. The keeping back wasn't the issue. The issue was they made it look to the apostles like they kept nothing back. They made it look to the apostles that they were being more generous than they actually were. Not only were they deceiving the apostles, but they were seeking to deceive God as well. And then you get this really difficult thing, the shock in verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. I think that's there to arrest us, just to realize that the judgment of God is very real and God sees our hearts. And when we're withholding our hearts from being a blessing to the church, for whatever reason, be it material or in any other different way, God sees that and it breaks his heart. And it's not the stuff that God can build his church through. He sees our selfishness. He sees our deceit. He sees where we do good things, but with selfish motives. He sees when we're working hard, but striving in our own strength, not fueled by his grace. He sees all of that. And it's not the stuff that he will use to build his church, to build a church of one heart and mind that shares together, works together, where the grace of God is at work. But the good news is God wants to change our hearts. And I hope that as we continue to reflect on this passage, he will do that. But then it goes on. Why then a second example? It's not just Ananias, it's Sophia as well, his wife. Why then sort of laboring this point? Probably because Peter knows the deception of his own heart. And so he needs to hear this twice. After three hours, verse 7, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter says, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias paid for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Straight lie. Peter said, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down to his feet and died. It's very strong, isn't it? But why? Because God, through this passage, is teaching us of the power of having a deceptive heart, the power of a selfish heart, which is all about us. And he's saying, that is not the stuff that I can use to build my church. So you've got two examples. An example of selfless heart that's motivated by the gospel and an example of a selfish heart that's motivated by own gains. Well, you take those two examples and you go full circle back to where we started. Chapter 4, verse 32. What type of heart will build the type of church that we've been talking about all morning? Is it the humble heart The selfless heart that's motivated by the gospel, or is it the selfish heart that's motivated by self? The answer is very obvious, isn't it? So the question I want to leave us all with is, what kind of heart do you have? And is God using that heart to build his church, 
or taking your heart to undermine it. Because my prayer for us all as a church is that God would grow us all to have healthy hearts so that God would grow a healthy church. And a healthy church is one that has one heart and one mind. And when we have one heart and one mind, we will share together and we will work together. And the grace of God will be alive and evident in all that we do. And that is a church that I want to be a part of. Amen.